Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Dr. John Dayton, an emergency physician, investor, and entrepreneur. He's also the founder of MedForms.com, which helps physicians find the best educational resources. Dr. Dayton's focus is on improving healthcare through innovative medical devices and digital health. And to that end, he's an advisor to companies in those sectors. So Dr. Dayton, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So can you start by telling us a bit about yourself, what led to your, what led to your interest in medicine, and then winding up becoming an emergency doctor? Sure. I've always looked up to, to family members. My dad is a physician and just made sense when I was little. He's a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. And that's just kind of you know, the route I took. And so I, I just copying him, I, I ended up going to medical school and then finding emergency medicine was a little bit different. I was convinced I was going to do another specialty. And the nice thing about medical school, you can do different rotations, see which ones you like, see which ones you don't necessarily care for. And I realized I would have been really unhappy had I gone with my first choice, but emergency medicine was a good fit for me. I'm kind of a stereotypical uh, ADD doctor. I like to be able to diagnose a heart attack, sew somebody up, put a joint back in place, do a psych uh, evaluation and all of that in one shift. And so it turned out to be a perfect fit for me. Yeah, that echoes a lot of the raise line guests we've had. People like Dr. Joe Habush in New York, who runs MD Calc. I think emergency medicine tends to attract people who have a lot of interests. And also, you know, clearly your resume as an entrepreneur, an angel investor, and also your work on Navajo Reservation, which we'll get into, very much aligned with, with that profile. Yes, no, Joe's such a great guy. I had a chance to meet him when I was at a, a conference last year. Yeah, he's, he's, a, he's a great example of like an emergency physician that's doing something outside of his regular shifts to just make medicine better. He's a great guy. Totally. Couldn't agree more. Uh, another emergency physician based here in Utah, uh, who I'm sure you know, is the, is the white coat investor. Is, Jim uh, Dolly. He and I used to practice together. That's yeah, awesome. We were part of the same group. Yeah. Oh, really? Great. Yeah. So, I mean, I met, I met him uh, for dinner a year and a half ago, but it seems like Utah has a, a lot of physicians, especially in emergency medicine, who are entrepreneurs like yourself. Yeah, I, th- I think there's something to that. We, we always joke that we have the best part-time job because 12-12 is considered full-time and that leaves you a couple days if, you know, to spend time with family or pursue other needs or sometimes both. Yeah, if I, if I ever go back and finish med school, because uh, I'm on, still on leave from, from my med school, as I'm building osmosis, I think emergency medicine is probably the, the, the path for me too. So can you tell us a bit more about MedForums, what inspired you to found the company, and what your priorities are as the chief medical officer? Yeah, absolutely. When I was just out of residency and needing to take my boards, I was looking at a lot of different options for both the written test and the oral test and figuring out what would be the best study strategy, trying to mix that with, with my new practice, being a brand new attending emergency physician. And and I realized there wasn't a lot of great information out there. And who I could ask was kind of limited to you know, the 11 docs that I trained with, the attendings at that residency program, and my current practice group. Long story short, I ended up going to a course that it was okay, but it wasn't great. And, and I realized when I went home, like, gosh, I, I really only had a handful of people to ask. You know, the programs that had the best, you know, advertising were the ones that kind of caught my attention. But I, I didn't feel as prepared as I could. So I ended up doing another program. And at the end of that experience, I thought, wait, what if there was a way that we could tell each other, hey, this is the best course ever, you need to attend this or conversely, hey, maybe this one's good in this regard, but there could be a you know, different option for you depending on your learning style. 
And uh, I realized there just wasn't anything like that. Fast forward to a couple of years and I was doing some locums and I ended up on a night shift where I had probably one of the toughest shifts I've ever had. I had a bunch of sick people. I was in a rural area. I couldn't transfer anybody. Nobody was accepting my transfers. I was having a hard time admitting folks to the same thing. I thought, boy, I really like the locums company, but this shift is terrible, this this particular location. And similarly, I wish someone could tell me that was a good one, or I wish someone could tell me, hey, maybe keep your eye out for this one. And so I uh, boy, physicians, not, and then obviously not physicians, but um, also PAs, nurse practitioners, residents, med students, we need a way to crowdsource each other. So that, that's sort of the idea in my mind. Well, I'll, I'll build a platform for that. We'll find the best education resources. And initially, when we were thinking about the idea, we thought, well, maybe they want to weigh in on education. Maybe they want to weigh in on employment areas. Maybe they want to weigh in on equipment. What's going to be the best one? So we kind of took the idea to ASEP. It's our specialty society conference, American College of Emergency Physicians. And we just asked, I think we ended up asking 400 physicians, would you be interested in using something like this? You know, if you could talk about education versus equipment versus employment, which would you prefer? And education came out as the top one. And we thought that makes a lot of sense. You may switch careers a couple times in your life. As emergency physicians, we don't really have a lot of say on the equipment that's that's in the department. But one thing that we have to do is our annual CMEs. You got to do your, you know, your boards every 10 years and that's changing. But that seemed to be the best thing. So we, we focused over the next couple of years on finding the best way to find the best traditional resources, the best CME or continuing medical education courses, and then also non-traditional things, things like podcasts that some of the residents were doing, podcasts like yourself were doing, logs, looked at apps, and then we thought, well, we found a bunch of products, let's get some initial ratings and build a site. And so that was, that was kind of the story how it began. I worked with an incubator uh, in Utah called RevRoad. My wife had actually done something similar in the past for the Department of Labor. So we worked together to kind of build that out. And that's, that's where we are right now. That's awesome. So is your wife your co-founder? How is that going? Yeah, so that, uh, eventually I realized, well, I'm really going to have any ideas, but I'm not really good at day-to-day business things. And she's, she's got her, a master's degree and she's very, she's very professional. And turned out that was more her wheelhouse. And so my, my role is to be the chief medical officer. I touch base with a lot of physician colleagues, residency programs, specialty societies. That's, that's the, be- the better fit for me. And so that's, that's kind of our division of labor. And then the incubator we worked with, they built out the website and they, uh, we worked with them on kind of marketing and strategy and, and moving forward. That's awesome. Well, so switching gears to another, another hat you wear, you, you work as a physician on a Navajo reservation. And, you know, I think you're the first raised line guest we've had who, who's had that experience. Can you tell us a bit more about that and also how COVID has affected, has affected the, uh, the reservation system? Absolutely. So this is a really interesting situation. And this goes back to kind of changes to COVID in general. A lot of emergency physicians, we've been hammered where we work because COVID is affecting us so much. I was actually working as a, a, a locums physician and uh, I ended up being in an area that wasn't hard hit. And they said, you know, John, we really like you, but we don't need your help anymore. And so I ended up connecting with a, this physician group because it was closer to home, probably a better fit for me. I live in Utah, so I travel down to Arizona. But it, it is really tricky. Just to give you a little bit of background on that reservation, it's a big chunk of the, the northeast corner of Arizona and then parts of Utah and New Mexico, and maybe a little bit of Colorado in there. On the reservation, there's 30% of people that don't have running water or electricity. So that really affects outpatient planning. You can have someone come in and say, yeah, you got COVID and you need oxygen, but we don't really have anything we can plug in 
at your house to help deliver that to you or any power sources. That really affects how we transition. So I started there during the big first wave. And at the time, the Navajo Nation was getting hit harder than almost any other area. And so I was spending shifts kind of just living in gowns and respirators. And one of the tricky things is we have some limited capability hospital. There's a lot of great physicians there, but we don't have a lot of ICU beds. We don't have a lot of, you know, subspecialists. So we'd run into situations where we, we needed to transfer a lot of people. We needed to figure out how to screen a lot of people. We needed to see as many people as we could, kind of find the best way to use the resources available. So they ended up building a respiratory clinic, asymptomatic patients, could just come and get screened. If they weren't positive, they could go home and follow up with their doctor. And they were really good, even though they don't have, a lot of these folks have electricity. They're really good at setting up kind of tele, telemedicine there. But the folks that were positive, we'd see, and initially we'd see them and they weren't that sick. And unfortunately, a lot of times, two or three days later, they were, they were needing oxygen, having no way they could deliver it at home. And then it's a matter of, all right, well, do we send them to Phoenix, which is five hours away? Do we send them to Flagstaff, which is two hours away? Do we send them to Albuquerque, which is four hours away? And if so, which of those places has a bed and is the weather good enough that we can kind of transfer by air because four hour, five hour transports, that eats up our EMS transportability. And so we're needing to ship these people via helicopter. So very, very interesting situation. They're trying to get a systematic way for seeing as much people, as many people as possible, doing it in the most efficient way possible. That, that's been a, a great experience. Now, as we're kind of in a second wave, we're, we're in the same boat. We realize, boy, our beds are filling up pretty quick. But unfortunately, Arizona, in the meantime, like Phoenix is really hard hit. So a lot of times it's a matter of, well, we'd like to transfer this person, but there's no bed in Phoenix. And where else can we call? And so we're sending people like Gallup, New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, different different facilities in the area. So a lot of it, the trick is figuring out the best way to take care of the patients and also figure out the best way to disposition them, which is which is really tricky. Luckily, they've got great staff down there, and that's really helpful. But it's been a phenomenal experience. I can imagine. Very unique. And so what you know, what is life like on the reservation? I mean, uh, you know, I'm curious, like, do they, do the people in the reservation actually monitor, you know, social distancing, wear masks? I know that's been a, a, a trouble everywhere in the, in the country. I mean, in New York, they did a pretty jo- good job of it during the first wave, which is why they were a marker for, for how other cities should be responding or states should be responding. But I'm curious on the reservation system, how, how has the experience been? Actually, they're really good about it. There are signs everywhere. And one of my favorite ones is it shows, you know, a person in traditional Navajo dress and two sheep in between them and then another person. And then it says in English in Navajo, six feet, two sheep distance. And, awesome. and, and it sounds kind of provincial, but that's a really great way for the older, most of the older population. If you're 70 plus, you only speak Navajo. And so that's a kind of a great way to get the message out. The other thing that they've done really well is they're always quarantining which is a traveling doctor, it's a little tricky. Everything shuts down at like 3 or 4 p.m. Nothing's open during the weekends. Like, so let's say you're traveling in town and you're going to work. It, it's a little tricky finding a, a grocery store that's open during your time that you're there. A lot of times we're living, Indian Health Service has some housing. When I worked down at Hopi Hospital, I live there. There's, there's two hospitals in Chinle, but one of them was for COVID patients. They, they transitioned the whole thing. Someone was sick. Their family didn't want them coming home. They didn't want to get their family sick. And so half a hospital was used to to quarantine these patients that weren't sick enough to need oxygen. They weren't sick enough to need admission, but they also didn't want to get go back into the community and and cause disease. A lot of these folks will live in in hogans or smaller houses. So you get one sick person, everybody else is going to get sick pretty quick. The other really interesting thing is, is these are dry reservations. And with the quarantines, people wouldn't be able to 
buy alcohol. So we ended up with really interesting situations where folks that had uh, alcohol addiction uh, issues were, were drinking hand sanitizer and homemade drinks that ended up having methanol in them or ethylene glycol. So we ended up doing a ton of serum osmolality labs. You, you know, you don't do a ton of those. And, and looking at um, their serum osmolar gaps and realizing, all right, this person needs dialysis. We definitely got to get him out of here because we don't have the capability. So, there, so even though some things are meant to be safe, there's unforeseen consequences. And that, and that was one of the big ones. That's pretty fascinating. Some of the things you see. Do you speak any Navajo? Have you learned any of it along the way? No. And you know what? I, I wish I could learn it. You listen to some languages and you, you feel like you get a feel for it. I got to tell you, you know, seven, eight months in, I don't think I could recognize a thing I've heard. I think that's the reason it was so effective during World War II when they had the code talkers. I, I can say like, hi, and, you know, basic things. And that's about it. That's very interesting. So, you know, going from working in the Indian Health Service where, again, resources may be limited. And as you were saying, like some of the some of the people on the reservation, they only speak English. You know, now you've just been accepted as uh, the first innovation design fellow at Stanford's Department of Emergency Medicine. So congrats on that. But like clearly that's that's the other other end of the spectrum, probably the most advanced part of the healthcare system. You know, what what kind of trends in medical innovation are you excited about and what do you hope to achieve as as their fellow? Yeah, so I am I'm very interested in in how AI can help us from a public health standpoint, from designing research, from helping us with our charting. I think that's going to be a big thing. The other thing I'm really interested in is uh, digital health solutions, particularly wearables and trackers, where so much of our health is shifting to telehealth. I think that's going to be a big game changer for us. So that that's what I'm after. I'm, I'm going to be doing shifts in the ED there. I'm going to be getting an MBA while I'm there, but I'm also going to be involved in working with their bioscience school and their design school. And again, doing that MBA to kind of, my, my goal is to help physicians when they have an idea, take it to the market. A lot of, a lot of times we have great ideas and we don't know the next step. And I realize there's group, there's great groups that help like, Society of Physician Entrepreneurs, and there's great resources for folks with one step of that. I, I'm hoping to that I can get a kind of knowledge that'll help me be a, a translational physician where, all right, here's your idea, here's the next step. Oh, you've already researched it, you've already built a prototype. Okay, here's how we bring it to the market. You've got some data already, excellent. Let's connect you with some angel investors, some VCs, or or some healthcare networks and see where we can go from there. And that's that's my goal with the with the fellowship. That's a pretty enviable goal, and Stanford's a wonderful place to do it. Even though the campus, the way it's designed, as you as you probably know by now, the med school is very close to engineering school, very close to the business school, and then you know Sandhill Road's right nearby with all the venture investors. Whereas I know a lot of other places, like Harvard undergrad, is different is across the river from both Harvard Med School, which is pretty far from Harvard Business School, and so that physical proximity, I think, is a is a, is, a, is an advantage for the campus actually. Absolutely. That, that's one of the big things I'm looking forward to. The other thing is a lot of their, pro, not just programs aren't not just being close to each other, but also being collaborative. So for example, the buyer, and blanking on the name, I'm sorry, the Buyers Bioscience School, people over there that take a course together, you'll have folks from the engineering department, some folks from the medical school, some folks from the business school. And so that's, that's what I really look forward to. Totally. I could see, again, all your passions and interests kind of intersecting right there. So, you know, going going back to your experience as an emergency physician, you know, you've seen a lot of things, you know, you've experienced treating COVID patients. What are some of the, the longitudinal changes, the lasting changes you think will happen to the healthcare system as a result of COVID? Such a great question. I, I think the biggest thing is realizing that the emergency department is going to take on a different role. 
I think out of necessity, we saw with this situation, but I think in general, that's something that has to happen. As COVID spread, all like same-day surgeries and primary care offices shut down, the emergency department was just taking care of everybody. Obviously, we're not doing, you know, the same-day surgeries. I wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't want me doing those. But, but at the same time, we're filling more roles than we usually do. The other thing that, that really uh, showed was the importance of having charts that have interoperable data or transportable data. And that's a big thing that that has shown. The other thing is I think the emergency department will really improve care of our patients if we're able to integrate more with pre-hospital care, but also being integrated to post follow-up care. And so I think that's a, that's a major thing. You know, it's funny during the, during this, during COVID, we have half of our, half of the group of emergency physicians that are just getting burnt out, living separate from their families and so tired and trying to get PPE. And then half of us were in places where it wasn't hit and we're getting furloughed and fired. And, and, and so it's a, a lot of things that can lead to burnout. And so I think a lot of that has to be addressed too. I think the other big thing that happened is it, we realized how important the role of public health information dissemination is. And also uh, on the, on the, flip side, how, how bad that can be politicized and how things that need to happen may not happen because people think it has a, a political bent to it. So I think we really need to figure out how to make sure we're you know using clear sources and people understand that they're clear sources. Yeah. And on that point, in terms of public health information, we've been fortunate to have several people like we had KX Jing, uh, who's the head of Facebook Health. He was on our podcast recently and talking about some of the challenges that Facebook is facing with trying to keep public health information valid. But then, you know, the reason we called us, you know, this podcast raised line is how do we improve healthcare capacity? And that initially started off as telemedicine and PPE and the supply chain around PPE and testing, which are some of the guests we've had, people like Mike Alkire, who runs Premier, which does supply chain management for a lot of health systems. But right now with COVID, you know, being exacerbated during this wave in every state, except I think Hawaii right now. You know, it's interesting, the, the burnout question, the staff training issue is is there. And so I'm curious, like, are you still hearing that there's some physicians who are being furloughed or even in the heart of this? Or it's it's like, it's everything right at this point. Everything's changed. A lot of the docs that are traveling, they were traveling to areas that weren't, were no longer needed, so they were furloughed. Even the folks that were going full-time because the hospitals, their typical moneymakers, like they're, you know, scheduled surgeries and things along those lines, all of the revenues coming, coming down. And as a result, they're getting their pay cut. So it's, it's been a, a tough year all around for emergency physicians, whether they're in the thick of it or whether they're away from it, they've, they felt the burden and they have colleagues, you know, that they trained with that have felt the burden. Totally. Could imagine that. So, you know, as you know, Osmosis is a education and training company. You know, we love to fill in knowledge gaps you know, if you could encourage us to, to, to develop a course or, or at a minimum a video about some specific topic, what would you like us to do and to which audience? Oh, what a great question. The, the answer to that is you guys are already leaders. When you talk about who you've already had on this week, it makes me feel like how in the world did I get an invitation? But I, I was looking at your website. You've done everything from creating infographics, CME courses, Ask Me Anythings, obviously quality interviews. And so I, I think that the big thing along those lines is continuing to be such a great resource for COVID. We recognize the same thing at MedForms where we built a page that just has advice from countries, states, universities, journals. We tried to identify the experts and make sure we can be a place where people can find that information. And that's a, you know, a non-loaded, non-biased site. I think you mentioned doing that on Facebook. The tricky thing is, you know, right or wrong, a lot of times people feel like what's there, or what isn't there is a result of bias. And that really 
hurts the hurts the ADA for. But I, as I look at what you've created, I know you guys have hundreds of thousands of users, and I wonder. Obviously, it's marketed towards clinicians and preclinicians, but I'm wondering how many non-clinicians you have on the site, just because the quality of information is so good. No, th- thanks for asking that. I mean, we that was one of the most surprising and 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 useful parts of building Osmosis. And as we started putting some content out on YouTube where we now have about 1.9 million YouTube subscribers, what amazed me was that the same videos we were making for nursing students or doctors for CME were, were getting a lot of comments from patients and their family members. People who said, oh, like my, my son has asthma and thanks for making this video because I didn't actually know what was happening or, or I have celiac disease. Now I understand why, you know, why, why I can't eat gluten, that kind of stuff. So it's been, a, it's been very you know, motivating and inspiring for us. And every week when we were in osmosis team meetings, we start those meetings with quotes from not only students and clinicians, but patients and family members and, and very rewarding. What a great motivator. I, and I, I think that's the biggest thing on the education side. An interesting thing I've seen come out of this is, is education come out of non-medical topics. We talked about Dr. Jim Dolly, his reader, readership for White Coat Investor has gone through the roof. A doctor named Peter Kim did a, a physician and growth leverage summit. It was about you're a physician, but you want to learn how to, you know, run your own clinic or do some concierge business or do real estate or be an advisor. And that that was that had huge attendance. And then uh, Dr. Saina Gori, she does a medicine innovation and entrepreneurship conference. The interesting thing to me has been not just what medical topics physicians have been in lately, but also non-medical topics, particularly as we feel a little unstable with the current environment. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I've seen that increasing as well. I know you've trained a lot of students and other and residents. And given that we have so many of them in our, in our audience, what advice would you have to them about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and approaching their career in healthcare? A great question. I, I think the big thing, people will, will be fulfilled professionally as they add value and they help others and they find something that they love. So I think the Best thing to keep in mind is to be open-minded as you do all your rotations. You know, if I would have been set in my mind, I would would still be trying to be a plastic surgeon, trying to get into a fellowship somewhere and working with in an environment that maybe isn't the best suited for me. But I was open enough, enough to realize, why well, I really like emergency medicine and that's a great fit. And I've been able to do a lot of cool things there. So I think the big thing you have to do is find your professional niche. And then within that specialty, find what you're passionate about. And use that as a way to help other people, because ultimately, that's what's going to prevent burnout for you. If you're in a situation where you can help others, that's going to be the biggest thing towards having a, a long and stable career. That's, that's some very, very good advice, finding that anchoring sense of purpose, which may change over time. But it may change over time, especially if you have as many interests as, as people like you and me have. But, you know, as long as you're, I mean, but that's fine. It's fine for purpose and, and passion to change over time, as long as you don't lose a sense some sense of purpose. Absolutely. I think you need to find that drive that, that helps you make people feel better. I, that's one of the things I tell people about emergency medicine. They say, oh, what's your favorite, favorite thing in ER? Man, if, if someone comes in and they got a, you know, a shoulder that is dislocated and I can just pop that back into place or they have a big old nasty cut and I clean it up and I make it look beautiful, something that I can do, you know, it's very short term, right? but I make a, a big difference in that person just within a half an hour. And that makes me really happy. I think you have to keep the short-term motivation and the long-term motivation aligned. 
Yeah, instant gratification is called. Instant gratification has a bad connotation for a lot of people with dopamine spikes. But in the examples you provided, I think that's that's what I commonly hear from people who like procedural type medicine. It's a great place to be in where you can see, hey, I did the surgery today. Tomorrow they can see better or they can move. I think that's super, super good. I have a, my co-founder's wife, so his name is Ryan, his wife, Sarah, she works for Intermountain down in uh, St. George, and she's the only movement disorder fellowship. And it can be very gratifying to be able to, you know, help someone who has a movement disorder, not, you know, basically mitigate their symptoms. But at the same time, we haven't reached the state where like you can reverse Parkinson's, or you can eliminate, completely eliminate it. So she sometimes talks about, you know, how that can be you know, it's playing the long game and the instant gratification often is not there. So I think, you know, in emergency medicine, it is a, mostly instant gratification because there's that, there's that term treat them and street them that sometimes is being, is used where like you may not see the patient again, unless they're using the ER as a primary care clinic, like so many do in this, in this health environment. Well, and that happens for sure. Yeah. But, but I, I think again, another reason I would be kind of drawn to er if i go back but that you know we're coming up with, oh, go ahead i was just gonna say along those lines that that that's my favorite thing because a lot of times we'll see a weird ekg we'll say this guy needs to go to the cath lab we won't see him again and the better we are the quicker we get him out of there so every now and then when you have someone come in and they say hey see the scar you did that or my husband's still alive because you guys realized he was having a heart attack like that that's kind of more the long term that we catch later on like we don't see those folks again but obviously very rewarding yeah. Or, or again, like in your clinical duties, you can do the instant and then building med forums and doing the work at the Stanford, you can see the long game too, as far as systemic changes. You know, we're coming up in time. So is there anything else you want our learners, our audience to know about you, about med forums, about anything we haven't discussed yet? No, that, I, I appreciate the option. If they haven't had a chance to check out med forums, they should look at it. We, we try to get a list of the best traditional things like CME, but also blogs, podcasts, mostly we're focused on emergency medicine because that's where my knowledge and contacts are. But particularly if they're from other specialists and they want to reach out and say, hey, you need to add this podcast or this course, we'd love to hear from you and we'd love to add it. And, and we really appreciate everybody that does that. Totally. Well, those are some good parting words. And, and Dr. Dayton, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And more importantly, for the work that you do to help patients, uh, either through both clinical care or through the innovations you do. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great work from Osmosis and really appreciate you guys having me on the program. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise lines since we're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.